I'd like to welcome everyone to a camp meeting. I hope that you are enjoying this Sabbath in some level of isolation. Last night, the word builds community. We talked about the triune God who has lived for eternity in community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how he created humanity to live together in communities of diversity, not judging each other, but appreciating and accepting each other. We spoke last night about the fact that all people in all the world, no matter what their color, race, or ethnicity, no matter what continent they live on, or political party they belong to, or even their sexual orientation, no matter what their financial status, intellectual prowess, or what job they have or don't have, all people are God's children. Imagine what that meant to Paul, who said there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Neither Jew nor Greek. What did the people think who heard that from Paul? They had lived with their very identity as being Jewish. For a Jew, the word Gentile was a bad word. For a Roman, to be a slave was the lowest form of person. For all people at the time of Christ, the female was lower than the male. And Paul comes along and says, you're all one in Christ. It's hard for us to comprehend the transformation that had taken place for them to come to that conclusion. There's a TV sitcom that was popular in the 80s. It was called Cheers, and the setting was a bar. The words to the theme song were, making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go to where everyone knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. It's tragic that it is more often the bar than the church where people feel accepted. More often the bar than a church where everyone feels at home because our troubles are all the same. You see, we're all broken people. We all need a Savior whether we find ourselves in San Quentin or in the church. That means everyone is welcomed and loved no matter what their present or no matter what their past. For we say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it is to be level in the church. Level for those who have homosexual orientation, for those involved in pornography, for those who gossip, for those who overeat, for those in an adulterous relationship, for those addicted to drugs, for those who abuse others, for those who are selfish, the ground is level. We all have our sins. We stand together at the foot of the cross. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a rest home for saints. All of us, all of us stand in equal need of a Savior. We should not spend a moment's thought in judgment of another, wondering why they don't measure up to our standard. We rather need to spend all our energy in thinking of ways to express God's love and his grace to others. It is the message of Jesus, and it was reinforced by John. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, John says. From the beginning, we should love 
one another. As an old man, John says, this is what we've known from the start. It's always been the truth from the beginning. Nothing new about this message. This is a fundamental belief. This is a fundamental doctrine. In the beginning was the word, that which was from the beginning. John, as an old man, says, this is the way things are. It's a fundamental doctrine from the very start of things. Of course, Jesus himself said that all the commandments were summed up in two commandments. I imagine that even John's time, there were those John was writing to who were tired of this love message. Come on, John, give us something more specific. We have problems in our church. Point out the sins. Cleanse the temple. Give us something more specific. We have problems. Let's, let's point out the sins of people. What we need, John, is a little more discipline, obedience to the law, more righteousness. John, you need to preach the straight testimony and purify the church. Most people who want to hear more straight testimony are not as interested in learning of their sins as they are in hearing the sins of others denounced. There are those who fear that in the emphasis on God's love, we neglect the law, that we encourage a rather laissez-faire attitude towards sin. A focus on grace and love is never to provide comfort in sin, but rather to provide motivation to shun sin. For example, if I focus on my love for my wife and her love for me, that doesn't make me feel free to commit adultery. Now, less of some of you get worried that I'm falling for love without the law. Look what he says in the same chapter. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Note, his command is to believe, to love, and to obey. We must never separate those things. Obedience follows love. We obey because we love. We know how to love because of the commandments. That's how we show our love. Don't ever think that when we emphasize love that somehow that's not hard. Nothing is more demanding than love. The law can't touch the demands of love. Legalism can't approach the requirements of love. Why do you think the scribes and Pharisees focused on the law? Because it's easier, easier than love. It's easier than heart religion, easier than love. Legalism leaves me with my pride. Keeping the letter of the law can leave me full of selfishness. Keeping the law strokes my ego. Law-keeping gives me a sense of superiority. You remember the story of the man who asked Jesus the question about what it took to have eternal life in Mark? As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him and knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commands. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, 
You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed these commands since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell your possessions and give money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad, for he had many possessions. He used his riches to keep the law. Sell my stuff? I love my stuff. It gives me a sense of power and control. I need it to keep the law, to be well, to be somebody of importance. In the time of Christ, you needed your riches to be important, to keep the law. But that which doesn't come from a heart of love doesn't gain us any credit with God. That which doesn't grow out of an experience of grace doesn't gain entrance to heaven. The robe of righteousness is put on us by Jesus, not by our effort. Keeping the law, you see, is easy compared to having a heart full of love for God and for neighbor. Ellen White was caught in a storm of controversy over righteousness by faith and the law in 1888. She reflected on the 1888 controversies over righteousness by faith in her diary and then emphasized her central concern with the 1888 message and the Adventist church. This is a fairly long quotation, but it's really important. Why then, she asked, is there, great, is there manifest in the church so great a lack of love? Answering her own question, she said, it is because Christ is not constantly brought before the people. His attributes of character are not brought into the practical life. A correct theory of the truth may be presented, and yet there may not be manifested the warmth of affection that the God of truth requires. The religion of many is very much like an icicle, freezingly cold. They cannot touch the hearts of others because their own hearts are not surcharged with the blessed love that flows from the heart of Christ. There are others who speak of religion as a matter of the will. They dwell upon stern duty as if it were a master ruling with a scepter of iron, a master stern, inflexible, all-powerful, devoid of the sweet, melting love and tender compassion of Christ. Many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. Why try to work out every minute point as if salvation of the soul depended upon all having exactly your understanding of the matter? All cannot see the same line of vision. Jesus and his pardoning grace, she noted, are the Christian's only hope in life. Today, our controversies are not the same as they were in 1888. <clears throat> Today, our divisions may be on other issues. What color should we paint the Sabbath school room, the Trinity, women's ordination? Really, is that what our church is all about? Must we be divided because we see differently on the unimportant? I repeat what she said. Why try to work out every minute point as if the salvation of the soul depended upon all having exactly the same understanding on the matter? All cannot see the same line of vision. The Pharisees were very religious. Their God was religion. 
They were devout, thoroughly pious, holy, spiritual from all appearances. They were addicted to religion, not to God. Some today are addicted to Adventism rather than Jesus. Some are addicted to doctrine, thinking that believing the right doctrines will save them. Some are addicted to church, believe that being in the right church will save them. Jesus' harshest criticisms were for those who were the most religious, most doctrinaire, the most law-keeping, pious people. And he said, you're hopeless. You religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds, he called them. You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and flowers bright, but six feet down, it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. People look at you and think you're saints, but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. What is our only hope in life? Jesus and his pardoning grace. In today's passage of Scripture, John goes to the heart of the message. This is the message you heard from the beginning. This is the one we had from the very start. You should love each other. How many of you love ice cream? How many of you love your spouse? Is there a difference between those loves? Do you love good music? Do you love God? Is there a difference between those loves? Is loving your spouse and loving ice cream the same thing? Our society has used love in many perverse ways, and they are degrading the word love. The word love in English is inadequate to express the love of Jesus and the love that John and Jesus are talking about. The word love in the Bible is agape. There are three general words used for love in the Bible. Phileo is brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's a spontaneous, natural affection used 25 times or so in the Bible. There's eros, sexual love. We get our word erotic from eros, and that's not in the Bible at all. And then there's agape, not a sentimental, warm, fuzzy feeling towards someone. Agape means to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. Christian love is a value-creating principle. I'm going to repeat that. Christian love creates value in the object it loves. We love, therefore, the person we love has value. It is not like we typically think of love. Typically, we think of, I love ice cream because it has value to me. It tastes good to me. I love you because you help me. You give me something. I love this music because it makes me feel good. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're rich. I love you for what you can do for me. All of that is selfish love. It's not biblical love at all. The King James Version of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13 may be a better translation for us. Charity. This whole issue of loving others becomes a measure of our salvation. How do you know you're saved? Do you believe in John 3.16? You ask forgiveness? I said the sinner's prayer? No, John says we know that we've passed from death to life because we love. We love our brothers. That's what makes the difference. Love for our brothers is proof of life. And brothers here does not mean Christian brothers. Brothers here means humanity. 
Have we passed from death to life? It depends. Do you love? Do you love like Jesus loved? You know, there's a lot of discussion in scientific medical circles about when death actually happens. If the heart stops, they can restart it and keep it going with machinery. If breathing stops, they can pump air to the lungs. Machines can make one think that a person's alive when they really have died. How do we know we are alive in the Lord? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love humanity, our brothers. You can tell a tree by its fruit, and you can tell a Christian by his love. So our love is actually an expression of charity, of goodwill, of kindness toward everybody, irrespective, again, of their race, their color, their creed, or where they live. We love people. We do good for people, no matter who they are or where we find them. I was in Southern California and spent some time with my daughter, Gina, and her husband, who lives in Redlands, California. It was the Sabbath afternoon when she received a phone call from James. To paraphrase the call, it went like this. Gina, I've not had a shower for three weeks. I went to the church, and they won't let me use the shower anymore. I was in the church on Sabbath. They asked me to move and make room for someone else. I don't like that church anymore. I really need a shower. And here's a picture of James. James is a homeless man. My daughter made his acquaintance when her husband pastored the church. To make a long story shorter, the next day we drove to a parking lot to pick up James and brought him to Gina's house, where he took a shower and Gina's husband gave him clean clothes. Gina often washed his clothes for him. She also asked him if he wanted his hair cut, and he said he did, and there was a lot of hair to cut, as you can see. And then we brought James, bought James some food for him and took him back to his home in the Orange Grove. There he is on his way back into the Orange Grove. In Matthew 25, 40 says, Then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it for me. That was Jesus walking back into the, into the uh, orange grove. You know, it, it's pretty easy to judge James for his self-medication with about 14 cans of beer a day, his lack of motivation to seek work or living homelessly, or anything that we should remember that everybody has a story. And maybe we would have more understanding if we knew their story. He told Gina a story of his childhood when his father killed his pet cat and made him eat it. But for the grace of God. Where would we be? When James called, it was not convenient. When James called, my daughter's family was very busy. Three children, projects at the house, work preparing for school, on and on and on. You know the busyness of a family. Then my daughter told me, if it's convenient, it isn't love. Love does what is not convenient. 
Love does what is not comfortable, what is not easy. She was referring to a quote, you love as much as you're willing to be inconvenienced. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. It was not convenient for Jesus. Love is not just about being nice to nice neighbors. Love is not about being nice to nice people. Christian love is not about being loving to the lovable. It's about doing what's not convenient. It's about doing what's difficult, what's awkward, what's unpleasant to people that you don't like. It's about being willing to lay down our life for others. Where is Christ leading you? Enséñanos dónde buscarte. Because the emotion tapped out. Physically tapped out. So I pray that sometimes I don't hear him. I don't think he hears me. Cristo, acompáñame. Cristo, ante mí. The church is not a clubhouse where people join and meet friends and have a good time and talk and share what they did last week and talk about what they're going to do next week. Agape, love, means to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? We demonstrate our love by our actions. Love is not an abstract emotion that warms our souls when there are people that are cold. Love is not a good feeling that we offer praise to God for when we have brothers in pain. Love is a way of acting toward other people. 
Basil the Great said, The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry person. The coat hanging unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard away belongs to the poor. That is a rather strong quotation, isn't it? Not in the family of God if you don't love. C.H. Dodd said, giving to the poor is the same principle of action as giving your life, though at a lower level of intensity. It is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. If such a minimum response to the law of charity or the law of love called for by such an everyday situation is absent, then it is idle to pretend that we are within the family of God. Now that's a rather strong quotation, isn't it? Not in the family of God if you don't love. Then Ellen White says in the story of the Good Samaritan, Christ illustrates the nature of true religion. He shows that it consists not in systems, creeds, or rites, but the performance of loving deeds in bringing the greatest good to others in genuine goodness. Unless there is practical self-sacrifice for the good of others in the family circle, in the neighborhood, in the church, and wherever we may be, then whatever our profession we are not Christians. Now that is really a strong statement. Not really Christians. Self-sacrifice, unselfishness, reaching out to the undeserving. I love this story told by Tony Campalo. I'm sure many of you may have heard it, but it bears hearing again. Listen to this story. If you go to Honolulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool. It was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. I said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. And the one on my immediate right, said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice, 
I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till, you know, till they all left, and I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out. She grabs my hand. She says, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know. But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, jeez, you know, God. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walks through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And We started singing, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake and finally he said, all right, Agnes, knock it off. <laughs> blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, now cut the cake, come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, what I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up, I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down, let me take the cake home, I'll bring it right back, I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence. The whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. A sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her, I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Campolo, 
You told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words. I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I thought that was a clever answer. I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Is that a church you would belong to? Is that a church like your church? Is your church open to the undeserving? to the prostitutes, to the drug addicts, the people that don't fit into the country club? Is your church working for the community? If your church disappeared tomorrow, would anybody in your community notice? Are you known as the church that loves when it isn't convenient? Let us commit ourselves to the inconvenient. Eternal Father in heaven, guide us as your people to live like you lived, mingling with the downtrodden, uplifting the hurting, loving everybody. May that be our testimony. May that be the testimony of our churches. In the name of your Son, who gave all that we might have eternal life. Amen.